0: If you design for the poor, the rich can come too. The reverse is not true.
1: Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood and in each episode we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode I had a great conversation with Deepa Prahalad who's an author, speaker and activist about all things to do with inclusive innovation. She's the author of Predictable Magic which was one of Fast Company's best business books of the year as well as a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Strategy and Business and Business Week. She's on the advisory board of the Global Peter Drucker Forum and ModRoof, an innovative sustainable roofing company in India. Lastly she also actively supports several global efforts in the memory of her late father Dr CK Prahalad, the famous professor of corporate strategy and co-author of Corporate Competence of the Corporation with Gary Hamill and The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid with Stuart Hall. Deepa recently gave a really inspiring talk at the launch of a new program that we at Liminal are currently facilitating called Scaling Out for Impact 2020. consists of over 40 pioneering companies from two innovative countries, UK and South Africa, facing three urgent challenges over six weeks to create one global community of businesses interested in combining social and commercial impact. So I started out by asking her, what is inclusive innovation and why does it matter? Enjoy.
0: Inclusive innovation is very broad and it's a little bit context dependent, but what you're really aiming to do is make sure that you are not just focused on ideas, but on access as well. What does it take to remove barriers and make sure that many more people can benefit? So for example, in the COVID crisis, I mean, we had ventilator technology, we had masks, But once people knew that there was an urgent need to make sure that everybody had access, we saw this huge, kind of both from civil society, from corporates, from academia, really coming together to say, okay, you know what, maybe we can have a ventilator that can be hooked up to serve eight people rather than two or three. Uh, Maybe we can have armies of individuals making masks and figuring out also the distribution challenges not simply the provision of the equipment itself and we're going to have to do a lot of that type of thinking whenever there's a vaccine developed so i think it's this idea of trying to address through business models through design through narrative not only focusing on the idea but really explicitly understanding environments and beliefs to a point that you can make the impact of what you do much greater and make sure that more people can benefit from whatever it is you design.
1: One of the things I've heard you say before is sort of designing with rather than for people. And is that what is different about inclusive innovation for you compared with, I guess, regular innovation?
0: I think it's a big part of it because distributing really uh, means understanding where people are at. But I also think that this can be much more effective. People tend to think of inclusion as a cost. I tend to think of it as an insurance. We have a lot of these business terms like disruption. And what is the main reason that people get disrupted? It's because somebody else sees a group of people, and market that could benefit from that device or that invention, and they are able to offer it in a more compelling way, a new business model, more affordable, a more concrete value proposition. And so I think that if we envision a much larger group of users at the outset, that's actually one of the best ways we have to increase our impact, but also probably increase our longevity, increase our profits, and also answer some of the sustainability changes challenges. Now, for example, in Silicon Valley, people have been talking about, let's just assume that you're designing for everybody. They've created what they call, you know, the Chindia price. If this had to go to China and India, that forces the question about sustainability. It's no longer a luxury. That forces you to become more affordable. It forces you to address distribution challenges. So it's actually a good way to make sure that whatever you're doing actually does end up being faster, cheaper, better as well.
1: I love that. An insurance policy against disruptions. That's powerful. So, I mean, the largest socioeconomic group in the world, low-income communities living on $3,000 or less. And I'm just kind of curious how some of these ideas play out when you're particularly focused on that kind of group of people.
0: So, and today, I think that current crisis is forcing a lot of that thinking. Even pre-COVID, there was a huge movement for companies to start talking about what are we doing in the world. So I look at this as now an acceleration of these long-standing debates. So we've created things like impact investing and B Corps because I think there's a recognition that while we can create a lot of wealth, once there's a certain level of inequality that forms in societies, you can always identify a profitable segment, but your actual impact may be, you know, negative or non-existent. On the other hand, if we're cognizant of the needs of a lot of people, we can bridge those gaps and actually There's not a lot of evidence that the companies that are doing this have done so at the expense of profits, have done so at the expense of goodwill. I think there's a lot of demand and desire for not just profits, but a narrative and a mission that serves a wider group of people.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. But I guess, is it really true that social impact and commercial impact are are truly compatible? Do you not get that pushback sometimes about these things? You have to trade one off against the other. I
0: don't agree that it's a possibility. It's not automatic by any means. It takes a tremendous amount of hard work and understanding what is needed and where you need to focus. It's not always obvious because I don't even think that it's one at the cost of the other. I think that the way social impact is measured is a little different from the way profits would be measured, right? If say I was dealing with child labor, I'm actually trying to just reduce the need for what I'm doing over time. Hopefully, I should be making those numbers go down. And when it comes to obviously selling something, distributing, we want increasing numbers, we want increasing market share. And so I think there's a little bit of difficulty in merging those two, which is legitimate. But I think the biggest barrier is a lot of mental models that are self-limiting. For example, the idea that people who are low income are highly risky. Not necessarily the case because many people who are poor, no matter what part of the world, are only offered different items when it's on a prepaid basis. For larger purchases rather, there's often a partner, an NGO, some kind of a loan involved. So you have a third party. So it's not necessarily the case that these are riskier. There's a lot less noise in these markets. So if you really design for needs and aspirations, you probably have a much more loyal base than you might in other places you have to design for needs and aspirations on the other hand once you've done that you have a much potentially larger audience that you can send things to so i mean my father was often fond of saying no if you design for the poor the rich can come to the reverse is not true and we're seeing that in in food habits and buying habits post-COVID that people are behaving very differently very rapidly um, because of the current crisis.
1: I liked what you said about sort of shifting mental models for instance around risk but in the example that you gave there you talked about maybe an NGO who is what underwriting the risk of perhaps providing a service to that group and if so I'm just wondering if it's possible without a non-government organization to underwrite the risk is it possible to provide services successfully and profitably?
0: The people who are able to do that without partners tend to do it through business model design and then they do a lot of the different things like paper use, installments, but those are not really something that different. People are not used to doing it for as small amounts. That's the custom for uh, western markets or developed markets with cars or houses or these very large purchases but the basic mechanics are very similar. I think that's something that has been done successfully even by entrepreneurs, you know, people rent solar panels they do these things and they actually are quite adept at also trying to create employment models where they also have kind of local manufacturing and then those become the sales force. So there's a lot of process innovation. It's akin to what cosmetic salespeople like Avon and Mary Kay did. It's not something that is unheard of in the West.
1: So do you think it's okay to make a lot of money whilst also serving these communities? To what extent does morality an exploitation kind of come into this or you know the, the risk of exploitation come into this
0: i think what we're seeing uh, a lot of times is really the exploitation comes in with not seeing people at all and aid while well-intentioned is limited and has you know had mixed results because I think that a lot of successful aid in emergencies is very effective but it doesn't create long-term prosperity right I mean but enabling entrepreneurship it's interesting because income levels have risen and we don't feel as joyous as we should, because inequality has risen alongside that. Uh, So today we have 5 billion cell phones. We have a global payments infrastructure. We have a lot of things to feel good about. But I think what happens is when you don't innovate and you don't serve those markets, what you've ended up doing is taking a billion people, at least in the last 20 years, you've taken them out of poverty and into purgatory. So it's the largest, ugliest glass ceiling you can imagine where now I have information, I have aspirations, I'm excited about what I could do. But without transforming the physical environment, without giving people the tools to move forward in their lives, I think that's truly the disservice. And if you treat everyone like other customers, if they don't like what you have to offer, they simply won't buy it. That's what a lot of even very big companies have learned is that people have opinions, people have preferences, and once they escape very extreme poverty, you actually have to start respecting those in order to succeed. And I think that can be a very healthy conversation.
1: That's really, really interesting. What's the alternative to purgatory out of poverty?
0: I think what you have is a Lot of information and the inability to act on that information and make your life better. Even in the West, there are a lot of people kind of stuck with that. What business and entrepreneurs do effectively is the way to change that is not to have perfect solutions. It's really to offer a range of choices. And that's where business excels. Because, you know, the end of the day, poverty exists for different reasons in different parts of the world. But for the individual, the consequences depressingly familiar, right? It's it's basically a lack of choices about what you can do, where you can live, what you can aspire to. And I think that if business did nothing more than offer and broaden the choices available, you're automatically impacting poverty. If somebody couldn't afford a four-year college, could they go to a community college? Could they go to a night school? Could they take an online course? So you just really need to create tools for people to navigate and decide their own priorities. And that's, what you really see the lack of in a lot of places that are defined by poverty. It's not a lack of skill. It's not a lack of information anymore. As much as it used to be, it is a lack of choices.
1: I don't know if you read a book called The Paradox of Choice years ago. I remember the author, whoever it was, describing the experience of buying a pair of jeans in some store. He had just a vast amount of choice. He ended up buying the most perfect pair of jeans he'd ever owned. And yet he still ended up feeling dissatisfied. My mother is East German where there was a lack of choice. And there's this well documented phenomenon after the wall fell down in Germany that certainly people of a certain generation, you know, were overwhelmed by the increased choices and, you know, depression rates and all the rest of it increased. So I'm just wondering, again, whether more choice is automatically a good thing.
0: I do understand where you're coming from. When people feel locked into a circumstance, regardless of how hard they work, regardless of what they really want, that's not helpful for society. That's not how people develop their potential. That's not how society moves forward. And the path can be very long, it can be difficult, but a path has to exist for people to change their circumstances. That's what gives people the motivation to do their best, is knowing that there's some kind of reward. So I think that fundamentally the idea idea of fairness is extremely important. And that's that invisible bulwark that holds up society. And I can say, I mean, coming from an immigrant family, I mean, we didn't know anybody when my parents came to graduate school. But there is this belief that the system is fair. That's the intangible that makes people put all of their effort toward a goal. And society benefits in the process as well. When you have like basic things like a dwelling that's safe, things like that, and there's nothing in between. That's how you get societies with that level of inequality, which I think all of us understand is very dangerous.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things I heard you say when you spoke recently, which I really, really liked, which was start with where people are and what they have, not with what they don't have. Is that another one of these kind of mental models or mental misconceptions that you find people sometimes have when thinking about some of these issues?
0: If I were to look at a fresh graduate at a university, what what would I be asking them? What do you want? Where do you see yourself in five years? What are your passions? Right. And that's not the discussion. We kind of tend to look at the physical dwelling and the physical environment and It's destructive for both sides because A, you're not having the conversation where there might be far more opportunities than you realize, but you're also making it so hard for yourself to make an impact, right? Because then you think you have to solve for things that you may not actually need to solve for. So this is the interesting thing is that skill is something that exists at every income level. I mean, if you look at a lot of countries that are poor, those countries have unbelievable artistic traditions, for example. So look at the skill level, see where you can leverage it. So they had a great story, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago in India where they have these communities that are just sculptors of all kinds of uh, religious idols and statuary of politicians. So they just took these same folks and taught them how to use computer graphics. And they got cartoons that were absolutely beautiful, visually stunning, because they had an innate understanding of the proportions that made sense. Now, somebody who hasn't grown up with that you know feel and experience may not be able to recreate that even if they're amazing computers so i think if you always look at how do i supercharge the skill that's there and if you kind of turn the question around who are the people who stitch you a suit in two days when you travel Who are the people who turn out amazing food for five houses in one afternoon? Maybe not people who look like you and I. So I think if we look at how do you leverage the skill, these are people who know how to create common ground. They know how to execute and they have developed a really innate way of understanding people's preferences. So why not we leverage those in hospitality, in design, in many other fields?
1: we're just wasting all this talent and ability as well as anything else. It's very closed-minded. So you quoted the figure earlier of a billion people moving out of extreme poverty since 1990, but inequality has risen sort of faster. What are your thoughts on closing the inequality gap as well as sort of moving people out of extreme poverty? How do we make trade-offs between those two things and how are they related, do you think?
0: I think there's a few things that we can focus on. One is this, you know, technology. I think we're learning is really a double-edged sword, because I think we potentially have a much wider reach. But ironically, sometimes it can narrow our focus to a degree that's not helpful. For example, I have online banking, I have online grocery ordering, all of those things are tremendously helpful. What has happened over time is that the people in my mind's eye, I don't see the banker, I don't see the grocery store bagger. So when I'm designing, I think a lot of people their focus and whoever is in their mind's eye tends to narrow. And that is kind of an inadvertent cause of why so many things end up getting designed. They could have a much broader impact end up being designed too narrowly. But I think although the income levels are different, a lot of the basic characteristics that we're designing for are getting equalized for unfortunate reasons. But this lack of separation between work and home, you know, this burden on women for caregiving, for teaching, and that anxiety about what the future holds. Some of those things are common to us all, and there are some platforms that have today grown big enough that perhaps we can all start to collaborate. And I think what has come is this awareness of, well, you know, different approaches, the merits and the um, shortcomings are visible to all. And I think everyone has refocused on this idea of how important community and connection truly is, and no amount of income and no amount of technology can compensate for losing that. So I think people are aware. And I think the other thing that's positive in this whole picture is that scarcity and uncertainty forces all of us to become makers. And I think potentially, once we gather our strength, a lot of solutions will emerge from unusual places in terms of how do we approach health, how do we approach hygiene, and people will again understand that I have to combine solid function, aesthetics, aspiration, and help people move forward. Hopefully we design things that are more robust in response to this.
1: One of the things you said, which I loved, was that survival is the ultimate design brief. I think you said and inclusion, the ultimate business model. Can you think of an example springs to mind, you know, around a, a statement like that.
0: What's interesting, I'm involved in a roofing company in India called Mod Roof and they said with the simplest premise that, well, all you really see is tarp and corrugated metal. On the other hand, all the wealthier houses have, you know, cement roofs. And in a place like Bombay, the square footage may not be tremendously different. There's just nothing in between. And this is what I'm always talking about is that presence of choice. And they said, well, even if money were no object, if people don't have land rights, if people don't have a dwelling that's solid enough to support a concrete roof necessarily. so they really spent a lot of time designing a modular roof that can be retrofitted on walls that are even one brick thick. The interesting thing about that is you transform somebody's life in a day. I mean, what we found over time is that 30% of the people who get this roof start or expand a new business within six months. So it shows that people have a vision for what they want to do with their lives, right? And and what great innovation does and inclusive innovation does is it gives people a springboard to work toward those. They didn't ask, give me a job. And by the way, these are all some paid in cash in installments. Some went and partnered with an NGO, and they're usually able to pay back within two years. But removing that barrier was the key to helping people move forward. And I, I love Muhammad Ali he said, you know, it's not the mountains in the distance that wear people down; it's the pebble in your shoe. And I think so much of what we have to do everywhere in the world is the same. I mean, even if you look at a country like the United States, a lot of the income inequality can be explained with transportation challenges, inequality in healthcare, and Inequality in education so sometimes I think solving the problems we know how to solve is what opens the door to solving the things we never thought possible and chipping away at a lot of things that have been with us for the last thousands of years gets chipped away by doing the things that you need to do anyway that are in your face because that creates the enough goodwill and conversation to move forward
1: I love that Muhammad Ali quote. What was the roof example that within six months of getting a new roof, people set up their own company? Is that right?
0: Well, there's lots of different examples of this. I mean, if you look at the kind of genesis of some of these models, like the microfinance model, you know, those initial loans were $50. So how sad is it that we are willing to consign families to live in that kind of poverty if that amount of money made available was enough to release people from that? If you even look today at countries like the United States, they ask people, what are all your dreams? What are your aspirations? What's on your bucket list? So I think that this phenomenon of increasing agency is the fundamental part of inclusive innovation. Again, first world problem, everyone's worried about data and privacy when they get onto the internet the bigger problem is that a lot of people just don't have access to high-speed internet to begin with we're in a blue ribbon school district if you have two or three kids i'm not sure that everybody has a dedicated device for each child and the parents to be working at home all day so of course the school has handed out chromebooks during the school year the difference is going to be what happens in the summer when those go back one group of people is going to be able to continue to learn, to interact, to connect, and one is not. And so I think that these issues come up in different ways, regardless of income. So the idea of inclusion is important wherever you are.
1: Yeah, you touched upon earlier the role of NGOs underwriting the risk, but your father who you mentioned previously famously wrote uh, an article and then a book that there's a fortune at the bottom of the pyramid, which was really trying to make the case that there is as well as doing good there is money to be made for businesses to kind of invest here. Is that still more true, less true, equally true uh, now than it was then when he first wrote and shared that thinking?
0: I think more true for a couple of reasons. One is that the actual narrative in the business community has changed quite significantly. People are talking about impact. They are talking about engagement. The other thing is that the diffusion of technology has been quite profound. And I think the impact of that is not just that now we can send ads out to more people. I think the impact of that is that the cost of learning has gone way down for companies that choose to engage. Now they don't have to guess at preferences as much. They can talk directly. You have big data for rich and poor alike. You can look at actual purchase behavior rather than anecdotal evidence. So I think that's a huge help because I don't think companies or even entrepreneurs want to make big bets on a sample size of One emotional conversation I had with my rickshaw driver. They may feel empathy, but they cannot justify an organization making big bets on that basis. But I think this core idea of just connecting with understanding what people want. I mean, let's look at a huge, big company like Hyundai in their design. Okay. When they released in the United States in the eighties. Everybody was like, okay, we're used to Japanese cars, but Korean cars. And their first model was $5,000. And the kindest review said, it's an acceptable alternative to a used car. That was the nicest review. (laughs) And the funny thing is, they did the counterintuitive thing. They had the most comprehensive warranty at the time and so there were these early adopters who were students who were people who were willing to take a chance but what they did is they kept in touch with them as their lives were evolving and they did a lot of concept cars that were never released to the public so for almost 10 years they didn't release too many new models and then they suddenly were like bam 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 a lot of really interesting models but when the financial crisis hit in 2008 that empathy helped them create a fundamentally new business model everybody was trying Trying to offer rebates and incentives one year of free gas they understood the underlying problem people have in a crisis is panic it's fear what if i lose my job so they created something called a hyundai assurance program and they said if you lose your job we take back the car with no reporting to the credit agencies and that was what propelled them to the number one brand that year and they also released the owner's manual On an iPad so this kind of blend of technology design fueled by empathy was really powerful and look where they are today now they're kind of leaders in drone technology this core approach of understanding who is left out Of course, everybody understands they're all trying to be consumer-centric. You're always in contact with the people who have already done business with you. But inclusion is the ultimate blue ocean strategy, right? I mean, who else can benefit? And some of the tests are not that hard. I mean, if you're designing electronic device Just go out to wherever you would go camping. If it's not going to work there, it's not going to work anywhere else. And this is where I think the knowledge gaps are not one way. That's what I think is so powerful. I think it's high time we revisited how we created the economic growth, even though it's fragile in emerging economies that focus on women because that's what's who is being hammered in this crisis around the world right now women are having to leave the workforce in record numbers because of not a lot of good childcare options they're not starting businesses at the same rates they were there's a lot of this that's going on and i think that we need to revisit what was the learning in bringing a lot of women into the fold in emerging markets because we're going to need it here
1: so i like that you know people want respect and sort of recognizing that but the issue you just highlighted around reduced female entrepreneurship in response to COVID, that's a kind of, that's a structural issue, isn't it? That requires a whole range of different things around childcare and other things that you touched upon to change in order to start to make a difference to, to that particular issue. How do we reconcile some some of that with the sort of commercial imperatives that we've talked about, the fortune of the base of the pyramid and all the rest of it earlier in this conversation? I'm just, in all of this, sometimes it's a bit overwhelming knowing where to start and which problems to focus on them, how do you make decisions about what's important and interesting? What advice or experience do you have around making choices?
0: I think the most important thing is you really have to take cues from the people that you're trying to help and trying to reach because they have a different view of what they need help with and what they want. And they also have an intuitive sense of what they're good at and what they're capable and willing to do. And so I think understanding that, and that's where I think traditional design thinking frameworks of just the observation of the physical environment sometimes can be a little depressing. And like you said, these issues are multifaceted, right? I mean, that's what we're finding with addressing racism, with addressing the Me Too movement is that there's a lot of inter- dependency. So part of it is understanding the story of individuals. Um, You know, what are these small barriers? But once you tie them together, we can understand they have this huge, maybe often unintended impact or unseen impact, um, unless it touches you personally. But I also think the reason to engage from my experience is something quite different. I think that if you look at these problems, It's so depressing. It's so paralyzing. But when you look at individuals, you get inspired because you would have to struggle to find someone who's actually given up. They're telling you this and you might feel a lot of empathy, but a lot of them are actually still plugging away and finding very intelligent ways to deal with things. So around the world, people respond to scarcity and hardship with this remarkable amount of courage and creativity. And I actually think that that engagement is so uplifting when you go out and explore, because then you realize like, I'm not really trying to tell anybody how their life should be. And I'm not trying to fix problems. What I really need to do is just bring somebody along, knowing that a lot of the gaps are actually so well matched to what businesses do anyway. Somebody who makes delicious food or what do they need? They need branding. What do companies do well? Help them brand, right? I mean, help them tell their story. What is LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram? Instagram what are we doing we're not even creating anything but an infrastructure for people to tell their story that's the thing access is the key here
1: you said something about human centered design being a bit depressing kind of observing people or, or what's a, what's a better way to understand what needs people have is it through telling stories
0: no i think it's just if you combine the observation and the actual conversation then i think it gives you a very interesting picture and a much more holistic one. And also, I think when people have developed friendships, you can always go back, right? I mean, if you overdesign the emotional connection, you know, if you don't get it quite right, people help you correct it, right? I mean, that's what all of these big companies do ultimately is they engage, they have software problem, thousands of people are rushing to help them fix it. You have a company like Lego, thousands of people want to contribute their ideas. They Why? Because they're acknowledged, because they're listened to, because they're heard, and because they respect... What what those companies have put out into the world. And I think that there's a much wider swath of people who are capable of doing that. And when products become more accessible and affordable to them, we will see the value that they add. We already know that engagement, all of these things have a direct bottom line impact a lot of the value of any company, regardless of where they are in the world, the brand and the, a lot of the value is in the intangibles. And those intangibles are not developed only by people inside the company. They're determined by people outside as well. And so engage with a much wider group, but it takes a lot of discipline. It takes more than one conversation to build that level of trust.
1: So thinking about the future, we're obviously in 2020 now with a major health crisis, and economic crisis. What can we learn from this field of inclusive innovation or, you know, the ideas that we've been discussing on this conversation today, which have been around for several decades? How can we apply some of that thinking to navigate our way through this strange time that we're living through and, and you know, hopefully build a better future? What are your hopes for how we progress from where we are now? You
0: no, know, I hope that one thing that we all do is really keep the focus on how do we allow people to live a dignified existence? You know, know, a lot of us have kind of proceeded on this assumption that we're all moving forward on this path and, you know, but there is going to be backsliding around the world to different degrees and there's going to be uncertainty that stays with us probably for a long time. So I think we have to approach whatever we do with the understanding that the actions we take and fail to take have very far-reaching generational consequences. And how do you allow people to still connect, to still be given respect, to share their ideas, because we are going to need all the ideas we can get, you know, on how are we going to distribute a vaccine? How are we going to check in on people who live alone? How are we going to provide for education in a more equitable way? So we need to make sure that we are still able to connect, even if it's virtually even more effectively, and across economic lines and across international lines, regardless of the compulsions of individual governments. And I think this is is so powerful. I think one of the justices of the Supreme Court here, John Roberts, he went to give a graduation speech. He basically told graduates, like, you're going to come across people who have been through a tremendous amount of hardship, and you have to approach life as somebody who is trying to heal the scars you can't always see. And I think that's really powerful because this is something that has touched everybody in some way, maybe not in their physical existence, but certainly in their assumptions about the world and their own uh, mortality and and everything. So it cuts very deep, but I hope that in that people have developed a little bit more of an awareness of how essential a lot of people who are dismissed truly are. And, And we design solutions that help all of us live in a more healthy supportive environment going forward.
1: A quick tangent, but have you been following the arguments uh, for and against ideas like a universal basic income? I'm just curious whether you have a a view on that.
0: I mean, through all of the different programs we're doing, we're trying to hobble something like that together together whether we call it that or not, we do have to provide some basic level of access and livability. And I think we can do that through a combination of policy, innovation, but in emergencies, I mean, that's not the case. We have wildfires, we have all these things. So I think we can all sit and debate stakeholder versus shareholder. But I mean... Ultimate stakeholders are Mother Nature and Father Time, right? They're gonna, they're going to ultimately call the shots. And I think this is the whole issue that's going to define the societies that really do well and those that don't. Is that how well do you design recourse? There are problems that we can take ownership of, and then there are ones that come upon us, and and we have to have solutions for <laughs> for both, regardless of our uh, views on individual behavior.
1: I was struck when I heard you speak last week. You said entrepreneurs are the freedom fighters of the modern age. And I'd love you just to expand on that a little bit and sort of give us a little bit of hope, a little bit of optimism, a little bit of agency.
0: Well, I think entrepreneurs have a very crucial role to play for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is... If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be an optimist. Nobody puts out a shingle or tries to do anything differently if you don't believe something better is possible. I mean, the other thing is you have to actually do something. You cannot analyze, you know, you have to do that as a starting point, but you can't stop there. And the other thing that entrepreneurs bring to the table, regardless of any, you know, individual successes or failures, is they have to focus on the future. And I think that's so important, especially when society becomes very, very divided along many different dimensions, that you have to say, How do I move people forward? And the entrepreneur's interest is in appealing to a very broad audience. So I think those characteristics of entrepreneurship are critical for societies and I think it's also kind of a proxy for the amount of freedom that's present in different societies because nobody becomes an entrepreneur if they don't feel that there's an audience for a different idea if there's an appetite for looking at the world in a different way. And that is a very quick and easy test to say like, how much are we respecting individuals? What is kind of the prospects? What is the confidence people have in the society that they inhabit? Nobody can guarantee an outcome. I mean, big companies do terrible flops sometimes and so do entrepreneurs. But the issue is, does the society evaluate an idea and create resources to pursue it? And increasingly, innovators and entrepreneurs are going to be the ones who have to create common ground because all of the problems we're dealing with as societies, whether it's sustainability, security, health, those don't have a defined answer, right? I mean, even if we had unlimited funding, we don't have an answer to pursue right now. It's going to come through a lot of experimentation, a lot of debate, and we're going to have to synthesize very different belief systems and views in order to make an impact it's going to be the people who say well you know what we have to look at sustainability and we have to look at food habits and create the plant-based meat or we have to look at emissions and we have to look at our need to transport and create the hybrid car so you have to respect a lot of different views and i think that ultimately creates the space for us to have these conversations and connections. And that's why I think that policy can put something on the table saying, yes, we must treat everyone as equal. But it's going to be entrepreneurs who create the tools for us to claim that equality and make it a reality.
1: Thank you, Deepa. I really liked what she said about inclusive innovation being an insurance policy against disruption and that skills exist, of course, at every income level. And I love the idea that entrepreneurs are the new freedom fighters and I'm inspired to channel some of that entrepreneurial activism through the work that we do at Liminal. I hope you enjoyed it too. To find out more about Deeper and some of the things we talked about, please have a look at some of the links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal a collective intelligence community that seeks to solve hard problems of sustainability and inequality. This podcast was supported by our patrons and community members. And so I'd particularly like to thank and welcome Hazel Maxwell, Tom McCallum, Sam Watkins, Rohan Gunatalika, and Ella Weldon. Thanks to all of you for your support and participation. To find out more about Liminal or to join the community, please visit www.weareliminal.com dot co forward slash community before we go please can i ask that you share this podcast with others who you think might like it as well and also it'd be great if you could like it on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts as it really helps thanks again for listening until next time please keep on connecting people and ideas if you do you never know what might happen thank you and goodbye